Good morning. We've gone through the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is all about being real, all about being authentic. And when we get to the book, the end of the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 13, verse 5, Paul really gets in our kitchen. He, he confronts us in this verse where he says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. And we're just spending a few weeks doing that together. We realize that in 1 John, John lays out some of the criteria for examining yourselves, and he gives us a subjective angle and an objective angle. We've spent the last couple weeks looking at the subjective angle. In 1 John 5.10, he says, the one who believes in the Son has the witness in himself. There is an internal witness, a subjective witness. There is something only you know that the Spirit of God witnesses to your heart that tells you you are a child of God. And how does that work? Well, we used Romans chapter 8 as the commentary because in Romans chapter 8 and verse 16, Paul says, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And all around that verse, he gives us three ways that the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit. Three ways to examine this subjective aspect. The first is that he gives us a new direction. He leads us away from the old life into the new life. And we see that in verses 12 to 14 of chapter 8. You can look at it later. He allows us, he gives us not only the the desire, but the power to actually put to death the deeds of the body and turn from that old into that new, a new direction. Secondly, he gives us a new relationship. Verse 15 tells us that the Spirit causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. And God, who I used to view before I was saved as a slave master, I now view as an affectionate father. God who I used to fear, I now love. God who I used to hide from like Adam did, I now find myself running to and longing to be with. I say with David, my soul thirsts for God. I once was his enemy, now I am his child, and I call him Abba. The Aramaic word, the first word formed on a baby's lips, dada, is the new relationship that I have with God. And then thirdly, he gives me a new ambition in verses 17 and 18, and that is to be glorified with Christ. And everything else pales in comparison with that new ambition that he's given me. In fact, no longer am I asking, what is the minimum requirement I am now, as a true believer in Christ, saying, God, whatever it costs, whatever it takes, if it's ridicule, suffering, I'll take it because my ambition is to be glorified with Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, as you examine yourself from the subjective angle, can you see the evidence? Only you know. I don't know. I can't see this. It's subjective. It's inside. It's something the Spirit of God inside you is bearing witness to your spirit. It's not visible to me. 
But you can ask yourself some questions. Do I sense him leading me in a new direction, away from the old and into the new? Do I sense him establishing that new relationship that I no longer run away from God? I no longer view him as intimidating. I now see him as my father. And actually, in times of need, I cry out to him, Dada. And do I sense myself having a new ambition to be glorified with Christ no matter what it costs? That's the subjective angle. Today we want to enter into the objective angle. In 1 John 3.10 we read this. It says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Now let me just say something that's obvious about that verse. There are only two categories of people. The children of God and the children of the devil. So you're either one or the other. And there aren't any distant relatives in either family. There's just children. There's no aunts, uncles, there's no you know, cousins. You can't be a cousin in the family of God. You are either a child of God or a child of the devil. And John says what? It's obvious. It's obvious. So not only do you see it, which is the subjective angle, but it's obvious. It's objective. Other people ought to be able to look at your life and say, he is a child of God. She is a child of God. Now what's the objective evidence? Well, I want to suggest three things that cause a true believer to stand out and make it obvious that they have real faith. And we will talk about those three things. The three things are a repentant spirit, a surrendered will, and a fruitful life. This morning, I want to talk about the first of those, a repentant spirit. One of the undeniable marks of true saving faith is a repentant spirit because repentance is an inseparable part of saving faith. You go all the way back to the beginning with Jesus. People always, I hear people say, you know, I don't like preachers, but I would have listened to Jesus. You know, preachers are kind of, they're offensive and they're kind of step on your toes, but Jesus, he was so loving. I would have loved to listen to Jesus. You know what Jesus' first message was? In fact, the first word in his message was, listen to this. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. Right after he's baptized and he's, he goes through the uh, 40 days in the wilderness and he's, he's uh, tested and tempted by Satan, it says this in Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He didn't have, even have an introduction. Didn't tell a joke first. He just says, Repent. That's his message. Jesus describes it a little later in Luke 5, 31 and 32. He says, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call righteous men, but sinners to what? To repentance. 
In Luke chapter 15 and verse 7, Jesus says, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Why? Because 99 righteous people who need no repentance are not going to get into heaven. And then he goes on to say this a couple verses later. I tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You say, well, Dan, is repentance really essential? Well, listen to Jesus' words in Luke 13, 3. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And then in case you miss it, two verses later he says this, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. You see, repentance is inseparably linked to saving faith. Apart from repentance... There is no salvation. You say, well, what is repentance? The etymological meaning of the word is a change of mind. But as we look at it in Scripture and see how it's used in Scripture, it's very obvious that it has a broader meaning to it. And the word means to turn around. It means to be going one direction and doing a 180-degree turn and go in the other direction. It means to turn from sin and self to Jesus Christ. That's repentance. It's to turn around from whatever else you're involved in, whatever idolatry, whatever sin you're involved in, to turn from that to Jesus Christ. That's repentance. Now, to help us understand that this morning... I want to talk to you this morning about what repentance is not. And I've listed seven things in your bulletin. First of all, repentance is not a message that was limited to the Jews of Jesus' day. There are those that try to argue today that John the Baptist preached repentance and Jesus preached repentance But once the cross happened, we don't have to repent anymore. All we have to do is believe. And so repentance was sort of a message that started with John the Baptist, sort of preparatory to Jesus coming. Jesus preached it for a while, and then it kind of faded out because we don't need to do it anymore. Let me show you a couple verses. Look at Luke chapter 24. And verse 46, right at the end of the gospel, this is after the cross, right before Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, and notice what he says in verse 46. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. What's he saying? I'm about to leave, and the message that is going to be proclaimed in the future is a message of what? Repentance. 
Turn over to Acts chapter 17 with me. Acts chapter 17. Paul is at Athens preaching to Gentiles on Mars Hill. Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. Paul says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should what? Repent. And then one more example. Look at Acts chapter 26. A few more chapters. Acts chapter 26. Bless you. Acts chapter 26 and verse 19, Paul is standing before King Agrippa. And he says, so King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 19, we read this, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish. A lot of us quote that verse and we stop right there. God doesn't desire any to perish, but it goes on like this, but for all to come to what? Faith? No. God doesn't desire that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance. You see, repentance is an inseparable part of the gospel. It wasn't reserved for Jesus' day. It is a message to you today. If you are saved, it is evident and obvious by the fact that you will have a repentant spirit. Second thing that is not. Repentance is not simply a synonym for faith. Some have attempted to describe away repentance by simply saying that it's the act of changing your mind about who Jesus is. So it's not really about your lifestyle, it's about your mind. You used to believe Jesus was not the Messiah, now you believe he is the Messiah, and they call that repentance. And they say, repentance then, therefore, is simply a synonym for faith. You can use them interchangeably. But when we look at Scripture, we realize that's not accurate. Let me give you one example. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 21, Paul is describing his message to the elders at Ephesus. And he says, I was solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and... Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, repentance and faith are two separate things. They are inseparable, but they are not synonyms. Thirdly, repentance is not a pre-salvation activity. And I want you to get this. Repentance is not a condition that you have to generate in order to be saved. The idea of repentance is not, hey, I'm going to clean up my life and then I can get saved. It doesn't happen that. It's not step one, step two. As I said earlier, they are inseparable. 
They both happen at the moment of salvation. In fact, they are a package deal. Genuine repentance never occurs except in conjunction with genuine faith. Or to say it another way, wherever you have true faith, you will always have true repentance. You see, the essence of genuine faith implies repentance. Because genuine faith means I am putting my total trust in Jesus Christ. Now, if I put my total trust in Jesus Christ, what do I have to do? I have to turn from the things I'm already trusting in. Whatever you're trusting in, it may be yourself, it may be luck, it may be people, friendships, whatever. Whatever you're trusting in, you have to repent of, turn from, and put your whole trust in Jesus Christ. If I'm going to go the way of the cross, I have to forsake the way I'm going. That's obvious. So repentance and faith work together. You are turning from something, whatever you have your hands on, whatever you're trusting in, whatever you're embracing, whatever you're worshiping. You turn from that and you turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Happens at the same moment. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9, there's a great little phrase where Paul says to the people of Thessalonica, he says, You turned to God from idols to serve the living God. You see, you turned, that's repentance, to God from something, idolatry. That happens at the moment of faith. It's repentance and faith. Simultaneous. Unseparable. Inseparable. Whichever word is right. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 21. It's kind of one of those parables that a lot of people don't even know about because some of us don't even understand the parable. But Jesus says a father had two sons. And he told his two sons, go out and work in the vineyard. And the first son said, I will. And then he went in and sat on the couch and watched Sports Center. Yes, Dad, I'm going to the vineyard. And he didn't go. Second son said, there's no way I'm working in your vineyard. Rebellious. I'm not going. Went to his room, slammed his door, thought about it a little bit, repented, and went to the vineyard. Now Jesus is telling this story to religious leaders in Jerusalem. And he makes the application this way. He says to them, tax gatherers and prostitutes are going to get into the kingdom before you because they repented and believed, and you will not. You're the son who says, yes, God, I'll do whatever you say, and you're not doing it. They're the son who says, I'm not going to do it, God, and they repented and went. What's interesting about that story is there's not a third son that said, I'll go and went. Because none of us is that way. We're all rebellious, whether we say it or we don't. And we all need repentance. And that's what he's saying. Repentance and faith are inseparable. 
Fourth, repentance is not just an emotional response. A lot of times we think about repentance, we think of somebody crying, somebody weeping, somebody having sorrow. And while an overwhelming sorrow is associated with repentance, that sorrow in and of itself is not repentance. There are plenty of people in the Bible who were sorrowful and were not repentant. The classic example is probably Judas in Matthew 27. The Bible tells us he felt remorse. In fact, he went back into the chief priest and he took the 30 pieces of silver and he threw them on the floor. Tried to give them back, tried to make it up. Where did he go? He went out and hanged himself. He was remorseful but he wasn't repentant. In Matthew 19, Jesus talked to the rich young ruler. The man came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And he said, keep all the commandments. And he said, I've done that. Which is a pretty amazing comment. I've done all that. And Jesus said, well, all right, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And the Bible says he went away grieving because he was very rich. He was sorrowful, but he was not repentant. There's a great verse in Hebrews 12, 17 that illustrates this. It says, Esau found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Esau cried about the birthright, but he wasn't repentant. I've dealt with a lot of people in fact, I got a lot of tissues in my office just because people cry. They come in, see me, and they break out crying. Which may say more about me than them. But a lot of people cry in my office, but I've seen people show emotion over their sin and not be repentant. They may be sorry they got caught, they may be sorry about the consequences of their sin but they're not repentant. They're not willing to turn from their sin to Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. Sorrow is important. In fact, let me show you a verse. This is important. We we saw it in 2 Corinthians. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 9. Paul says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. And then he explains it in verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. There is a godly sorrow that God puts in us. It's it's brought by the Spirit of God. It's a sorrow for my sin, and it produces repentance. There is also a sorrow of the world. That's the sorrow that says, I'm sorry I got caught. I wish I didn't have to go through this. I wish I didn't have to suffer the consequences. But you see, there is a sorrow from God. That sorrow is not repentance itself. That is a sorrow that leads you 
to repentance, which brings salvation. And then the fifth thing that repentance is not. Repentance is not merely an act of the human will. After returning to Jerusalem, Peter gave this account of the salvation of Cornelius in Acts chapter 11. He said this in Acts eleven eighteen, And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Who grants repentance? God does. Who gets the glory? God does. You see, repentance is not something you can generate in yourself. It's something that's granted by God to you. He produces that sorrow. It leads to repentance. Therefore, he gets all the glory. You see, apart from God, I would never really see sin in my life for what it is. The Bible tells us in John 16, 9, that part of what the Holy Spirit's ministry is, is to convict us of sin. And in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, it tells us the kindness of God leads you to repentance. And in 2 Timothy 2.25, we're told that the Lord's bondservant should with gentleness correct those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. It's something God grants. So you see, the Spirit of God convicts me of my sin, giving me that desire to turn away from it, His kindness gives me that desire to turn to Christ. And then he grants me the power to actually repent, turn away from that sin, and turn and embrace Jesus Christ. And it's all God's doing. Sixth thing. Repentance is not an internal activity. It's not just a subjective activity thing. It's an objective thing. It's something that other people can see. You see, when you genuinely repent, you come under the conviction of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And the first thing you do is acknowledge your sin. You say, this sin is an affront against God. You say with David in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. I've sinned against other people, but ultimately it's a sin against God. I recognize that sin for what it is. I acknowledge the sin. I also accept the responsibility for it. I don't blame anybody anymore. I don't sit around and blame Adam or blame my parents or blame my circumstances, blame my environment. I grew up in a tough neighborhood. Come on. You see, I accept the responsibility for my sin. And I also agree that I deserve the consequences. I say, God, I have sinned against you and I deserve your wrath for this sin. I deserve the consequences of an eternity in hell for my sin. See, this is repentance. You go there. People who say to me, it's not fair. Everybody should get to go to heaven. I know they don't understand repentance. Because if you understand repentance, you are saying, it's not fair that anybody should go to heaven. Because I acknowledge my sin, 
I have sinned against God. I take responsibility for it, and I say, I deserve the consequences for this. And God says, the wages of sin is death, eternal. And then I realize that Jesus took my sin. That God took that sin that I did, I'm responsible for, I deserve the consequences of hell forever for. He took those sins and he placed them on Jesus on the cross, and he paid for those sins. He bore my sins in his body on the tree. And when I realize that, then I am turning from my sin and embracing Jesus Christ. That's repentance. And if a person has come to genuine repentance, it should be obvious in their life. John the Baptist was talking to the multitudes in Luke chapter 3 and verse 8, and he looked at them after they were baptized for repentance. They came up out of the water soaking wet. John the Baptist says to them, bring forth fruits in keeping with your your repentance. Act like you're repentant. And they said, what shall we do? And John said, if you've got two tunics and you see somebody with none, give him a tunic. If you've got food and you see someone who doesn't have food, give them your food. That's the fruit of repentance. The tax gatherers say, well, what should we do? And he said, stop cheating people and treat them fair. The soldiers said, what should we do? And John said, stop using your force to get things from people. Stop doing what you used to do. Turn around and live a new lifestyle. Fruit of repentance. Jesus condemned his generation. In fact, he said the people of Nineveh are going to stand up in the judgment and condemn you because Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah and you will not repent at my preaching. Did you ever go back and look at how they repented in Jonah? People in Nineveh? Go back to that little book of Jonah. Chapter 3, it says they believed in God, they fasted, they put on sackcloth, which, which, which was a picture of mourning. It says the king found out he put on sackcloth and he knelt down in ashes before God. He made a decree in the land, nobody should eat or drink, not even the animals, so that the animals are mourning as well. They're in sackcloth, ashes, kneeling before God, not eating, fasting, mourning before God. And then he says, turn from our wicked way, and maybe God will respond. And you know what it says? It says, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, God repented. God didn't do what he said he was going to do. He turned from that judgment and he forgave them. Now what I find interesting is, it doesn't say when God heard their prayer. It doesn't say when God heard their mourning and crying and sorrow. It says when God saw their deeds. Because repentance is obvious. And if you have a genuine, repentant spirit, it's going to be evident by a changed life. Paul described his message. We read it earlier in Acts 26.20, but I didn't finish the verse. Paul says, 
repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. You see, if you have genuine repentance, there are deeds associated with that that are obvious. It manifests itself in a changed lifestyle. And then seventh, and finally, repentance is not just a one-time act. I didn't repent at salvation and stop sinning. It didn't, thank you. Somebody is noticing. Sin doesn't cease. It won't cease. In fact, John tells us in 1 John, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. So we repent at salvation, but sin doesn't stop. But what does change is my attitude towards sin. I now don't look at sin as something I really desire and uphold and can't wait for the weekend so I can do it. Sin is now something I see through God's eyes and I abhor as an offense against him. I have a different attitude. And I have a different approach when I sin. Jesus said in John chapter 3 that men love the darkness for their deeds are evil. What do we want to do naturally with our sin? We want to run to the darkness and hide it and hide ourselves like Adam did. But John tells us if you're a true believer, you come to the light. You you, you take that sin, you know here it is. I can run and hide in the darkness or I can bring it to the light and bring it before the Lord. And that's why somebody who is genuinely saved is repentant at salvation And it starts a process of repentance in your life as you go on. And that's why in 1 John chapter 1, in verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christian life is kind of like an onion. God reveals a layer of sin and you peel it off and what do you find underneath? Another layer of sin. And another layer of sin, and and Cliff Ford, you say, yeah, and you cry the whole time, you're peeling it. (laughs) It's just layers. It's it's not like, hey, I get here and and I'm done. God teaches me something, and and he wants to change me, and I I peel that layer off, and I go, oh, man, there's, there's another layer. And usually it works from the outside in. It's those outer sins I can deal with, and then I get the inner attitudes and selfishness those things that I really don't want to look at, and God continues to go down the layers, and he says, I want you to peel it off, peel it off, peel it off. And if you have a genuine repentant spirit, although you may wrestle with God sometimes, you're going to ultimately say, I surrender. I'm going to turn from that. I'm going to repent and confess it and come back to my loving Father and deal with it the way I ought to. That's something that you understand if you have a repentant spirit because it's really the expression of what you desire to do. Acknowledge your sin and turn from it. So as we close this morning, I'm going to ask you, is that obvious in your life? When there's sin in your life, are you the person who's always defensive, always 
justifying, always making excuses? Are you the person? Are you the person who runs to the darkness every time it happens? Or are you the person who brings it to the light and exposes it before God and says, God, you're the only one who can deal with this. Take this sin and transform my life and make me more like Jesus. Have the praise team come back. We're going to close our service today. And as we do, I'm going to ask you to just do some introspection and be honest with the Lord today in terms of where you're at when you think about a repentant spirit. Does it mark your life or not? And if not, then maybe it's time you genuinely came to Jesus Christ in repentance and total faith in him. Let him speak to you today and respond in obedience.